0: It's hard to believe that I Heart This is on its eleventh episode, but hoot and nanny, here we are. Today on our show, we're tromping off into the woods again to get to know some of our fellow mortals. So pack up your Petersons and your Sibley guides and your Audubons. Today's show is all about field guides. Welcome to I Heart This, everybody. A podcast of thank you notes to a universe full of awesomeness. I'm Ben Lord. Let's talk about what we love. When I was in high school, I was part of this program called Project Discover. The basic idea was to connect students with a mentor in a field that interested them. And my most passionate interest at the time was the wild and natural world. Regular listeners will remember that at the time, I desperately wanted to know how I might live off the land to feed myself from what I could hunt and fish and gather And there was only one slight obstacle, which was that nobody around me knew anything about hunting or fishing or animal tracks or how to make a meal from acorns or weeds. Truth was, I didn't even really know what the weeds around me were. My mother was a dedicated gardener, and she knew the vegetables and the flowers in her garden, but much of her knowledge stopped at the garden's fence. I mean, sure, I knew a dandelion from a violet, because... Everyone seemed to know what those were, but as much as I loved the woods, they were in many ways just a wall of undifferentiated green, an impenetrable hedge. Birds and butterflies and animal tracks were even more mysterious. A flash of color would wink from the underbrush, or a coquettish wing would wave from across the street, and then it was gone. What was that thing? There's no time to study it. What should I have even looked at? How should I have turned my attention? Should I have looked at the bill or the feet? Should I have squinted to see if there was a subtle yellow eye ring? The whole wild world was overrun with mystery, and I had no way through the complexity. So when I became a part of Project Discover, I asked the program coordinator if she would find someone who might teach me about something wild. Maybe plants. I was really interested in plants. And unlike birds and mammals, they didn't run away. Maybe I could learn which ones were edible and be one step closer to my dream of living off the land. The mentor she found was a man named John Souther, and he was old. Old enough that I was surprised that he was allowed to drive. I don't know for sure, but I think he might have been in his 90s. And I'm not proud to admit that I was very disappointed by this. This old man was so slow, I had to speak loudly for him to hear. What was I possibly going to learn about living in the wilderness from a man who had trouble navigating the back steps? And I could not have been more wrong. That first day, John and I tramped through the long grasses by the edge of the woods, and before we looked at a single plant, he announced that the first thing I needed was to become familiar with the tools of the trade. He showed me his pocket hand lens, and then he announced... Now for trees, you want Petrites. and for flowers, there's nothing beating Newcomb. And he pulled from his backpack two dog-eared and weather-stained books that would change my life. It is hard to overstate how profound this single gift was for me as a young naturalist. It was as if he had handed me the keys to a secret door. I still have George Petrides' Field Guide to Trees and Shrubs. Its pages are beaten and crinkled. It is stained from all the leaves that I've pressed in the pages, but the rugged paper still does its job. And even more precious, I still have Newcomb's Wildflower Guide. It comes with me on every vacation I take, and my family affectionately calls it the Duke, both as reference to its privileged place among my five long shelves of field guides and also as a tongue-in-cheek nod to Duke Nukem, the character from G.I. Joe. In this age of information tsunami, it is hard to appreciate what a hard-won jewel a good field guide is. Learning to identify our fellow creatures has earned a certain reputation for dweebishness as boring and pointless as stamp collecting. And while there is certainly no accounting for taste, I would challenge anyone to spend a single weekend learning the trees on their street or the weeds in their yard and not find something that sparks delight. The truth is that the creatures around us are so wondrous and so surprising that they will inspire even the hearts of those too jaded, or too cool to be impressed. So today, let's talk about the little books that have served as passports to nature itself for millions and millions of people. Let's talk about field guides. I'm Ben Lord. You're listening to I Heart This. There are lots of books out there that are just collections of pretty pictures of birds and flowers mostly meant to be left in the coffee table. And lots of times, they mix together creatures that live far away with the ones you might actually see out in your own backyard. And this podcast episode is not about those books, as delightful as they may be. Because the books that I'm writing about today are tools, like a hatchet or a pocket knife, meant to be carried outside, to be gotten dirty, and to be put to work. A field guide is a tool designed to help someone learn the name of a thing. And a good one usually has two parts. The first is a comprehensive catalog of drawings or pictures or photographs of all the particular things that you are likely to encounter in a given place. All the birds in the eastern United States, for example, or all the constellations in the northern hemisphere, or all the wildflowers of New England... This is the most obvious part of a field guide and the part that most people think of. But the other component is just as critical. The other part is a good key. The logic of a good key is simple. Instead of looking at all of a flower in its overwhelming detail, petals and sepals and stamens and leaves and leaf margins and their growth habit and their habitat and their venation and whether or not they have tiny little hairs in their stem, a good key asks you to focus on just one thing. One thing at a time. Are the leaves needle-like, like on a pine tree, or broad, like on a maple? Are the leaves arranged directly opposite from each other, on the twig, or do they alternate, one side, then the other? Keys that work like this are called dichotomous, because they are just a long list of paired options. Dichotomies. One question at a time. Each question leading to another, and another, and each one focusing your mind on just one important observation, until after a few minutes of careful study, you have made a new friend, and you've exchanged pleasantries, and now you know this new being's name. A name, at its most basic, is a line of demarcation. It says, This thing, a daisy fleabane or a scarlet tanager, is something separate and unique. There may be similar creatures, but this is a thing of its own, worthy of our attention. Now, names aren't everything, of course. They're really just placeholders. They don't tell you the history or the spirit or the utility or the beauty or the mystery. I once met someone who didn't want to learn the names of the constellations. She was afraid that putting the stars in little mental boxes would diminish the awe she felt on a clear, dark winter's night. I appreciate her sentiment, and there is something to it. It is possible to become complacent when we know the name of something. It creates this illusion that we somehow know it. We stop looking at something as the ineffable and unknowable mystery that it is. But I disagree with the claim that names somehow rob the world of its majesty. Knowing the name of something, giving it a home in your own mind, a little crevice in which stories can collect and germinate and grow. Because I can identify Polaris, the North Star, and I have a name to attach to it, I don't just see it as a point of light. I see all the things I've come to know about it, too. I see the globe of our own Earth endlessly spinning on its tilted axis. I see navigators at sea finding their way home by pointing their sextant at that one star. I see long-exposure photographs of the night sky where Polaris stands still at the center as every other star dances in a ring around it. And I think of how, over the next 2,000 years, Polaris will pass on its mantle as the North Star to Gamma Cephei, As the Earth's axis wobbles like a sluggish top. All that history and mystery because I know its name. So no, names don't have to diminish our sense of wonder. More often than not, they magnify it. Nowadays, there are a whole bunch of new tools that make naming things very easy. And when new acquaintances learn that I'm interested in birds or flowers, many of them ask whether I have seen some app or another. Merlin, by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, will listen through your phone to the bird songs around you and tell you the names of the singers. Another app takes your grainy picture of a leaf and tells you what species it is. These tools are, without a doubt, amazing. They work like magic, and surprisingly, they work pretty well. But they miss something crucial, I think. Using a key in real life doesn't just give you the name of a thing. It teaches you how to see. Slowly, over months and years, the questions of the key become imprinted on your own mind until the key itself lives inside of you. I remember being out with friends one day and coming across a flower that I didn't recognize. And, being the extrovert that I am, I bent down to make its acquaintance. My friends asked what it was, and I said I didn't know, but I would look it up when I got home. And as is our reaction with so many things in life these days, she pulled out her phone and she asked, Would you like me to send you a picture of it so that you can identify it later? But I stood up and brushed myself off and thanked her and told her that I didn't need it, that I'd remember it. "'You'll remember?' she asked with an incredulous expression on her face as if she was wondering how I could possibly remember all the details I'd need in order to figure out which of the hundreds of flowers in the book matched the one I happened to stumble on that day. If you haven't practiced using a good key, downloading a flower or a tree or a bird might seem just as magical as those AI identification apps on your phone." But there's nothing magical about it. Anyone can learn if they spend time with a good key. The first few questions become second nature to ask. How many petals? Toothed leaf edges or smooth? Alternate or opposite branches? Those questions alone are usually enough to narrow your search to a few dozen species. Practice with the key gives you the ability to draw a quick and accurate sketch in your mind's eye, and no app can do that for you. The story of how and why the first field guides came to be is worth telling, partly for how it reveals that their existence was far from inevitable. Indeed, the story of how we got them is convoluted and it's full of missteps. We human beings have been learning about and identifying our fellow creatures since long before we were human. There were obvious utilitarian reasons for this, and probably aesthetic and spiritual ones too. For most of that long history, writing didn't exist. And even after its invention, written records were rare and only accessible to a literate few. And all of this is important to the story of field guides because a field guide is, at its most essential, a book. So for most of humanity's long history, field guides couldn't exist. Fast forward to the 1300s in Europe, where books were made, but they were painstaking to make. Paper was impractically expensive to produce, so most books were made from pages of animal skin. Each one took hours of liming and dehairing and stretching and scraping to turn into some page. And any words or pictures were painted on by hand. Add to that the work of revision and decorating and binding, and it's easy to see why books were rare and precious and often seen as an unnecessary luxury. In medieval Europe, writing's primary purpose was religious. Writing on worldly matters was at best suspect and at worst heretical. Secular texts were often sanded away so that the precious parchment could be used for the higher purpose of making copies of religious material. The only secular works that survived were ones with obvious practical value, lists of things that could be extracted from the natural world. And so, even after thousands of years of writing, and even in the most literate societies, most people who cared to learn about wild creatures did so by asking someone they knew. How much knowledge must have been lost and rediscovered And lost again. How many discoveries must have been made only to be twisted and exaggerated in a generational game of telephone. And how precious and fragile the knowledge of the elders must have seemed. Today we assume that knowledge and information constantly expands, but among medieval Europeans, knowledge was widely considered to be static. Divinely inspired prophets had written the Bible. And somewhat less divinely inspired pagan Greeks had written their philosophies. And that was it. Anything that there was to know was certainly recorded in those two canons. Knowledge wasn't discovered. It was handed down because everything worth knowing had already been recorded. And while this attitude wasn't universal even in Europe, it was widespread. And it was certainly expedient for the church. To many educated medieval Europeans, something was true because it was old and unquestioned, because it was in the Bible, or because a church-approved Greek philosopher had testified that it was so. Direct observation was liable to corruption. Real truth came from authority, whether philosophical or theological. And authority came from God. But in the 15th century, things began to change. New pulping methods made paper much cheaper, and the European reinvention of movable type meant that in the course of a few generations, books went from being chained to the walls of fortified abbeys to being accessible to, well, a slightly wider, slightly more inclusive illies. But however slight the change in access, the effects on people's thinking was profound. After Bibles, one of the earliest demands for books was for knowledge of medicinal plants. Presses all over Europe began putting out herbals. These books were hardly original. They plagiarized each other with impunity, and even the books that got plagiarized were mostly error-ridden and poorly translated rehashings of the ancient Greeks. To a modern botanist, it would be eminently clear that the people who put out these books had never even seen some of the plants they were talking about. The woodcut pictures in these books, too, were copies of copies of copies, even of plants that might have been growing right down the block. Nevertheless, many of these books were absolutely beautiful, and at least on the medieval scale, very popular. But putting all these books in the hands of all these people caused changes of its own. Now that many people could read their own Bibles and their own books, more and more of them came face to face with the inconsistencies between the pronouncements of authority and their own experience. And this led to a contagious and disruptive skepticism. Theologically, this led to the Protestant Reformation— Philosophically, it led to the radical notion that truth might come as much from observation and experience as it did from the ancients. Today, birdwatchers have a saying, often attributed to John James Audubon, the great illustrator of some early field guides, that when the bird and the book disagree, always believe the bird. But in Renaissance Europe, this was an explosive new idea. By the mid 1500s, people were calling out all kinds of errors in the old texts, and they were going out and making observations of their own, writing descriptions of plants and making drawings of what they actually saw instead of what Dioscorides had seen 1500 years ago. Now, these still weren't field guides, most of them covered a hundred plants or so, and most listed plants alphabetically, which is not helpful for identifying anything. But they were an enormous advance over anything that had been available for a thousand years. And then something even more explosive happened. Europe discovered the rest of the world. Explorers returned from distant lands with stories and often specimens of strange creatures the likes of which Europeans had never seen Suddenly, the list of living things known went from several hundreds of common weeds and wings that could be found in a European countryside to thousands upon thousands of bizarre and mystifying creatures. The living world was dizzying in its diversity. The world, it turned out, had not been fully described by the Greeks at all. The world wasn't just big, it was baroque, it was staggeringly complicated. What could possibly be done to make sense of it all? In the 17th and 18th centuries, scientists made many attempts to do just that. To organize, to classify, to make sense, to see if there was some underlying order to the flamboyant weirdness of life on this planet. This ultimately resulted in the classification system of Linnaeus, which most people might remember from their high school lessons about King Philip coming over for great spaghetti, the mnemonic used to remember the nested levels of his classification. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. And still, even then, there was nothing like a modern field guide. Why not? The technology, the material, the demand were certainly all there. But the first real illustrated keys wouldn't appear for centuries after printing technology and colonialism and a widespread and lucrative market for books about living things were all well-established. What gives? In 2011, Lawrence Griffing published a paper in the American Journal of Botany that might offer a clue. In that paper, he writes about a striking set of watercolor paintings of plants from the 1600s found in the archives of the Royal Society of London, one of the oldest scientific organizations in the world. And with these illustrations was a key, a true dichotomous key. Together, they comprise perhaps what is the world's first true field guide. The author of this first true field guide was a man named Richard Waller, but Waller never published it, and Griffing suggests several reasons why. Letters from Waller's colleagues at the Royal Society revealed that they weren't huge fans of his work. One colleague called it peculiar. Another said it would hardly be worth the work and the ink. These were all distinguished gentlemen of means who were deeply interested in natural history. They were all scientifically minded. Several of them were writing books on plants themselves. These were just the type of people you might expect to applaud such a novel idea. And yet, they demurred. Why? Some of their letters suggest a simple but disappointing answer. These men didn't see the need for a field guide because they already knew their botany they were the experts of a very exclusive club they had set up the game according to their own rules they knew the jargon because they had invented it a simple and visual key wasn't necessary because the only people who would need one were novices the uninitiated the people who weren't in the club Waller proposed his key in 1688, and after its rejection, it was largely forgotten. It would be almost another century before Jean-Baptiste Lamarck would write the first widely disseminated key to plants. That's the same Lamarck, by the way, who also proposed an ingenious and influential, though discredited, mechanism for evolution. Lamarck's key was remarkably effective, so effective that the legend goes, he took the first copy into the streets to find someone who knew nothing of plants, handed him a copy, and watched with satisfaction as this stranger to the botanical world figured out for himself the name of a new and strange flower. And this brings forward another amazing thing about field guides. They democratized our knowledge of the natural world. Today, anyone with a few bucks, the ability to read, and sufficient patience can come to know all the creatures around them by name. Like public libraries and public schools, they put the world's hard-won secrets in the hands of the average person. Experts in all subjects built walls of seemingly intentionally obtuse jargon around their Intellectual turf and field guides, they were like tunnels under the ramparts, giving us interlopers a way in. A field guide is a simple idea, but to make a good one that anyone can use is a monumental task. Many keys must include hundreds and thousands of species. To be a field guide writer, First, you'd need a comprehensive knowledge of your subject. And second, you must be a more-than-passable artist, two skills that both take many years to master. And then finally, once you become a dedicated bird nerd who's good at painting, you must spend years or even decades of your life at your desk painstakingly sketching hundreds of birds with relentless precision. The making of an excellent field guide Could be one of the biggest projects that a person undertakes in an entire career. To make something like this from scratch would be impossible. It would strain the powers of anyone. But fortunately, no one needs to build it from scratch. Consider, for example, how I learned about snapdragons. The snapdragon is a common garden flower, and it is the very first flower that I can remember learning to identify. My mother had given me a garden of my very own, a little circle cut out of the lawn just down the hill from our stone porch. And we planted marigolds, and inside that, a ring of snapdragons. And she showed me how each blossom was a little dragon's face whose colorful little mouth would open up if I squeezed its throat. Who taught her this delightful little trick? I don't know. I never asked. But I like to think it was her own mother, who taught her when she was a little girl. I imagine myself standing at the end of a long line of people that extends across the field and fades from view. And just behind me is my mother, handing me a snapdragon blossom. And behind her is my grandmother, passing a snapdragon on to my mom. And behind her stands whoever taught my grandmother the name of this flower and showed her how to make it roar, How far back would that line extend? Generations and generations, hundreds of years, thousands. Does that line extend back across the sea to Spain and Portugal, where the wild progenitors of snapdragons probably came from? If there were a string that connected me to my mom and my grandmother and all of the other people who passed on this knowledge about a snapdragon, if there was a thread that connected us all, how long that thread must be. But every plant and rock and crawling insect and cloud and star that has a name has a history just like this. Every flower you can identify, every animal track that you know has a string that goes back in time. Our knowledge about them has passed through the minds of many many people before arriving in our own and if we do right by this priceless gift we will pass the shuttle on to the next generation all of those threads woven together on this giant loom of knowledge and language what a gift this is the collective heritage of names and stories In some ways, it is just as beautiful as the world it describes. One person may act as a compiler or an illustrator of a field guide, but they are not the author. A field guide is always built on the collective wisdom of generations, people who have loved things enough to pay deep attention to each one. People who have noticed things like the fact that When a leaf falls, it leaves a scar on a twig. And that within that scar are other scars left by the bundles of tiny tubes that carry water and food to and from the leaves. And that the number of those bundle scars feeding a single leaf is always the same and can serve to identify a tree or a shrub even in the depths of winter when twigs and bark are the only clues you have. A field guide is the collected repository of centuries of loving attention by thousands of people. It is literally a chance to commune with the wisdom of the ancestors. I can hear the skeptics. Well, that's nice, but so what? I mean... How much do I really need to know about birds and rocks? I mean, I don't live in nature. I've got a nice apartment in New York. The birds I see are pigeons, and the wildlife I see are rats. If I'm hungry, I order a DoorDash. I subsist on mocha lattes, and my life takes place online with occasional forays into the real world. Why should I even care? Well, firstly, because it's just the polite thing to do, y'all. When John Muir's daughters asked him why he insisted that they learn the names of all the plants and trees and birds around them, he responded that it was a matter of etiquette and neighborliness. How would you feel if the people around you didn't bother to learn your name? But manners aside, I have to admit that the skeptics are right. You know, Knowing the rattlesnake plantain won't enhance your ability to survive. It probably won't get you a date. But if it does, let me just say, that sounds like a date worth going on. In today's world of GPS, there is no economic benefit to being able to pick out the constellations in the night sky or tell Phyllite from Schist. But that doesn't mean you don't need to know these things. I think earnestly and wholeheartedly that you do there is a universe out there that is bigger and wider and more surprising than the ones that humans built. In our contemporary lives, our houses and our cars and our cities and our screens continually reflect back our own ambitions and our own agendas until it is so easy to believe that everything in the world is there for us that the world's very purpose is to fulfill our whims. But that is not the case. The creatures of this world exist for themselves. The rocks and stars exist for themselves. And we ignore them at our own peril. If not for our own continued collective survival on the only planet we've got, then for our ability to escape a kind of self-imposed anthropocentric narcissism. In his remarkable and inspiring book, The Variety of Life, Colin Tudge says this, The prime motive of science is not to control the universe, but to appreciate it more fully. It is a huge privilege to live on Earth and to share it with so many goodly and fantastical creatures albeit a privilege of which we are grotesquely careless. In truth, if we did not need to exploit other species, we might simply and unimprovably spend our lives in admiration of them. They are so extraordinary. John Souther was old when I met him, and I'm sure that by now he has passed beyond the veil and his atoms have dispersed to become part of the plants that he so loved. When I knew him, I was too young, I think, to realize what a gift I'd been given when he first introduced me to Newcomb's wildflower guide. I know that I certainly didn't give him the thanks he deserved. But the long thread of knowledge that connects me to the wisdom of my ancestors passes first through his hands, and from there it passes through the hands of Mr. Lawrence Newcomb, who by all accounts is a quiet man who lived a life of service to the people and plants that he loved. From there, the line passes beyond where I can see. Thank you, John. Thank you, Duke Newcomb. You have introduced me to so many wonderful friends. My world is better because of you. You, like the species that you spent your lives in simple and unimprovable admiration of, were extraordinary. I Heart This is written, edited, and produced by me, Ben Lord. Our logo was designed by Brian Morrow Cribs. Our theme song was used with permission from neosounds.com. New episodes are released on the 14th of every month, though, just to let you know, we'll be taking a few months off after this year's season finale in November You can listen to our show and read the full transcript of every episode at our website, iHeartThisPodcast.com, and check us out on Facebook at iHeartThisPodcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your favorite naturalist. And if you like what we do, please write a review. It's a great way to help other people who might love iHeartThis just as much as you do. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, be kind. Be curious and be thankful.